Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. You're listening to the Guest Mentors five-part summer series. This is an opportunity for you to learn from women who are, first and foremost, professional speakers, but they're also authors, speaker coaches, and seasoned business owners. You'll learn about their mindset shifts, challenges, systems, advice for new speakers, pricing tips, and so much more. This series is full of inspiring personal stories, entertaining experiences on stage, and expert advice. Plus, all of these women are super cool. I want to hang out with everyone and make cookies and ride bikes. So you have that to look forward to. The Guest Mentors five-part summer series is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, my signature online course that teaches you how to become a paid professional speaker in six weeks or less. Learn branding, marketing, speech craft, pricing, pitching, and so much more. Now until August 31st, get 20% off using promo code SUMMER20 at checkout. Learn more at speakersisterhood.thinkific.com. Link is in the show notes. This series is also sponsored by Told Video, original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in speaker marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Follow Told Video on Instagram at Told Video for flash sales and discounts announced monthly. All right, Jess Pettit, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today about the steps you took to go from unpaid, unknown speaker to becoming a paid speaker with a platform. I help a lot of women who are in the space of discovering that they love public speaking, learning that this is something that really gets them excited, and then they want to take the next steps and they feel stuck. So I'd love to start with learning about your path. I know you did stand-up comedy and now you're doing trainings and you're kind of merging the two. Tell me all about that. Sure. I would imagine like a lot of women, I was doing trainings and speaking and keynoting and emceeing and all of these kind of things as part of my job, but it had never dawned on me that they were some kind of transferable skill to do on my own, even though I was hiring speakers and trainers and emcees and things like that to come into my work to do the work. When I would save budget, I would end up doing it. Or if it was an area of my expertise, I would do it. That's part of my job. And literally, I kept getting fired. Perhaps this will resonate with some of your listeners, but we live in a culture where you're not supposed to talk about being fired. And I kept getting fired because like, I was too good at my job. Or my favorite is that I was turning everything in on deadline, which was putting too much pressure on my employee or fellow employees. And the more the third time that something like that happened, I realized that the common denominator of getting fired three times in a row is me, and I'm gonna have to figure something out. And so I was trying to figure out like what what I could do. I was being paid out the rest of my contract, etc. And I just put up on Facebook at the time Facebook was brand new. You had to have an EDU address, and I had primarily only worked in an education sector. I put up on Facebook, like, hey, if anyone's interested, I could probably do like a training or something. You just let me know. And my friends were 
made me incredibly busy for very little money for the six months I was being paid out that last contract. And I just kept track of what programs did they hire me to do? What did they title them? How, what descriptions did they write about the programs that I was doing? What did the evaluation forms say? And eventually just put that up on my very, very first website, which was horrible and awful and evidence that you can still have a career in a terrible website. <laughs> um, but that, that's how it all started. So did any mindset shifts have to take place in order for you to go from, okay, I'm someone who continually gets fired to now I'm going to be doing this on my own. Did you ever have questions in your mind? Like, is this something that I can do? And maybe there's something wrong with me. Did that ever come up? No, I was a hundred percent confident the entire time. <laughs> that's what I figured. Not even once. Yes, no, I still have mind shift issues. Like speakers are fancy people, right? And like, I'm a, I don't even know if I put in a dryer sheet. Um, (laughs) So I think the mindset shifts are, they're your responsibility to recognize them and to figure out what you want to do. So even, you know, 15 years later, I've been a professional full-time speaker on my own. And I pivoted from speaking primarily in the college market to an association or more corporate level, which I refer to as grownups. And at the beginning, I didn't believe my content would be useful or connecting to grownups. So I was like, oh, I'm going to have to come up with a whole new thing. And I just started speaking to grownups. So for free, me paying to be able to speak there, et cetera, but the audience was no college students. And it had, I did that long enough to prove to my mindset, my approach and content and the, the problems that I solve are just as relevant to adults because ultimately we are all fourth graders. Some of us just got taller. Um, <laughs> and even now, 15 years in, I'm noticing I had a story that nothing I could do could ever be international. It's all very US based. And I think that that's another mindset shift too, is that internationally, if I were to speak internationally, there's still human beings who are probably fourth graders who maybe got taller. Like Mm -hmm. that's all in my head. Yeah. They could exist all around the world too. (laughs) Do you think think frustration is only a U.S. quality? (laughs) I don't think so. So you help people move from abstract fears to actionable habits that helps teams to work better together. So can you tell me one or two of the things you teach and if these are the things that you also use in your own life? Both. So I would say that my work is a Trojan horse diversity training. And if I call it a diversity training, then kind of the wrong people show up or at least the right people don't come. So I started saying that I do communication, team building, having conversations that matter, making better connections, that kind of language. So then people are like, oh yeah, I could use that. Oh yeah, I should totally come to that. And then while we're there, I talk about all the different skills that they already have in having difficult conversations with people that are similar to them or people who are their friends or people who are in their families And that those are the same skills used for people who are wildly different than them. The fear-based piece is that I think when we start talking about diversity, I think that people don't want to try to do something new because they don't feel competent yet. So then they kind of hover back. And my whole premise is to try to try because it's at least forward movement 
momentum building, you know. Mm-hmm. How is that met? Are people pretty receptive to that? To try to they try? are as long as I don't call it a diversity training, they're very receptive. But as soon as I say like this is how you meet people who are different than you and how you can like expand your own horizons and check your own conscious and unconscious bias. As soon as I say like the buzzwords that they have had ground into them by bad diversity trainings, it no longer applies to them. They're done. They don't want to have a conversation. So then I just squeaked off the vocabulary, but I still do the same work. So you've learned a lot about the importance of positioning and that if people will show up if you use the right words what kind of marketing pieces do you use to promote your work? Well, I'm, I say that I am a funny person and luckily people in my audiences tend to usually agree. So most of the stuff I do is funny or ironic or just kind of matter of fact about a thing. So the, the marketing pieces I do, I try, and I, I speak to this when I coach speakers too, but I think that your points of distinction or your authenticity, as we like to call it, is the thing that nobody else can buy, right? So your marketing piece should be that thing so that a consumer doesn't confuse you with someone else. A, confu- a consumer's already got a list of people that they think are like you. You're either all in the same Jeopardy column or like I have tattoos. So here's all the speakers that have tattoos it doesn't mean that I think I should be in a column with them, but it doesn't matter. I will never buy me. I will never be in my own audience. So then the the marketing or the outlaw. Good. How often do you run into corporations that say you're too out there for us, or we need someone more buttoned up? Does that ever happen to you? Because I think that's a big fear for some people who want to (laughs) show themselves more, but they're afraid of losing business because they're too much or their personality is too big. Yeah. So, my, I mean, my my typical answer to that is is that you would only be losing business that you don't want to work with, hmm. right? So, like, let them weed themselves out. Uh-huh. Like, oh, well, we can't have any we can't have any humor in the workplace. Oh, well, you should definitely hire someone else, right? Like, <laughs> but I think that goes back to the other question around marketing too. Is is that like this is what you get, and where. I'm interrupting myself, but I I often say when it comes to this kind of question that when you're self-employed, I would also maybe say as a woman, I've never been a man, but you have to ride two horses at once in order for this business to work. The first horse is the horse of ego, right? Which is like, why would you not want to hire me? Well, bam, I am amazing. (laughs) Um, If you spend too much time on that horse, you become a douchebag, right? So, but you have to be—you have to be on that horse when you're writing the copy for your website, when you're explain, when you're selling, when you're talking about, when you're trying to close a deal. You have to be coming from that place to some degree because they don't know. But the other horse is the humility horse, which is the like I'm always learning. Some of us have no idea why anybody would ever follow us to the moon, and yet here's a line of people telling me that they're going to follow me to the moon. But the humility horse, if you're there too much, you won't do anything. You need both of them, right? So like my marketing pieces may make a joke about something, but I have the confidence to back up the joke. I love that. I think that's so true too, to be able to recognize you have something to offer, but that you're also still a person who's learning 
right? So you've, you're on both horses at the same time. I want to talk about something more tactical in terms of building a plan and a schedule, being self-employed as a professional speaker. What kind of goals do you set for yourself? How do you build a schedule? Do you, have you learned over the years how many speaking gigs you can handle in a week and still be useful mm-hmm. in terms of travel, like figuring out how far you're willing to travel from home? All that stuff. Is there is there some sort of method that you figured out that works really well for you that you can share that might be useful to other speakers trying to build a plan like that? This is a super smart question. And now I want to listen to everybody's answers. I would say that if I'm, I'm going to answer really honestly. So when I was first starting out, so maybe the first five or six years, the bonus of being fired yet again, and this was the job I had, was that I didn't have to take vacation. I didn't have to take, like, ask permission to go do a speaking gig. Like, I was desperate and scrappy and resourceful, right? Like, I had to eat food. So, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that for $7 and chicken dinner because you got a chicken <laughs> dinner. And I'm hungry. So I just said yes to everything I wasn't thinking about like, what is my bottom line and how much are my expenses and I should definitely put some money away for taxes and a savings account. And some people have a retirement account and I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. I was thinking about like, get out there and work. I accumulated a ton of debt and I worked my Batakis off, I think is the edited version of what I wanted to say. I at one point was doing close to 200 a year. And that is too much. That might not be too much for somebody else, but I don't think that those people are in their 40s. So the chiropractor shame, I think, helped me like, oh, maybe I should do less. But it's mostly because literally my chiropractor called in the other doctor to come look at what I had done to my back and my hips by virtue of sitting on that many airplanes. She calls it 8F because I sit on a right window. So then life started happening too, right? Like I had shoulder surgery and then I had knee surgery and then I had a hysterectomy. And as I had surgeries, I'd have to take time off work and you have to plan accordingly. And going back to your original question around mindset, at some point, my health actually needs to matter. And I can't do my job if I'm unhealthy. And I think if I'm, again, being completely honest, I went to a gig nine days after my hysterectomy where I was, I wasn't actually in pain, but I was exhausted enough that I realized I had not been prioritizing myself at all. I was only prioritizing my career and the gig and the client that had an impact on my marriage, that had an impact on my physical body. So now I'm trying to keep it under 50 And the downside of doing that is that now I can speak so infrequently that I actually get nervous and I begin to panic because the phone's not ringing off the hook or I don't have like level five emergencies of things I have to confirm every single day because the volume has come down so much. So the base of your question is like, what kind of system do I use to figure it out? And I treat every phone call as if it is going to be my last phone call. And I treat every phone call as what it is, which is they are paying me to leave my house, to put on a bra, to put on pants. And 
so I'm, I was able to, in my mind, in my mindset, justify a higher fee. I actually have a, I have a base number now that like, I don't want to leave the house for under this number and whatever that number is, that's your number, right? I leave the house all the time for under that number, but at least now I know that I'm doing it for below my target number, right? Instead of just doing it. I have a fee if you want me to put on pants. I have a fee if you want me to put on a bra, which is different than a virtual or in-person training, right? And I can make things available for their budget if I really want to do the work. The problem is like I'm 15 years sober as an alcoholic and I'm now just a workaholic. And so I have to be, I have to monitor my proximity to a bottle of Jack Daniels as much as I have to monitor my proximity to someone who has no money but wants to offer me a gig for exposure. Yeah, what do you do in that instance? I know I've been there many times and I, I have to run through my own system of figuring out whether or not to say yes to it. Do you have a series of questions you ask yourself? Do you meditate? How does that work? Well, I don't do any of the like actually like mature self work <laughs> stuff. No, no, no. And I still use a paper calendar. I don't know. Some of you are not familiar with these concepts, but I have a paper calendar. And it's a, it's one of those hippie calendars that automatically comes with a menstrual cycle page where you can check off your menstrual cycle. Ooh. And I haven't had a period since my hysterectomy, which actually was probably since like four years before my hysterectomy. But that's a different podcast. <laughs> anyway, what I do on this menstrual calendar in my paper calendar is... Am I making money? So like, when did I say the deposit is due? If there's a deposit, when is the remainder due? And then I color in the little box based on the contract that I made up because I'm making up the dates, right? So then what are my monthly expenses? So I say my monthly expenses are $1,900. Great. So then if Jim calls me, and Jim is a sophomore in high school, and they've been doing bake sales for the last 19 years to raise $100 to bring me in to do a four, seven-hour training. They want it in November. I look at my calendar, and is November's bills paid? And if November's bills are paid, sure. I'd love to, Jim. I am a sucker for a bake sale, right? Sure. And if my November bills are not paid, then I either ask them if they can move it to a month where the bills are already paid, or I ask them if I can have up to a certain date to say yes or no. And what is fascinating is that once I instituted this system, I guess you would call it, very, very rarely now are the free, or I like to use the language pro bono, these pro bono gigs, very few of them are magically showing up in months where I don't already have my bills paid. Hmm. So then I get to choose, do I want to go out of town again? Where do you find your biggest challenges when it comes to pitching, pricing, and negotiating? Maybe then, like when you were starting out, and now, are they the same or different? Or Well, the answer, I think, is just acknowledging that I have some kind of self-worth that solves a problem for other people, that they express their gratitude through the currency of the U.S. dollar. That is still a problem. Like, 
I'd rather just do like a joke exchange or like <laughs> now I really want bake sale foods, but I don't know that that goes away. And I don't, I don't know that that makes me an anti-capitalist. I don't know if that makes me a super capitalist, but I have a very hard time quantifying my skill set and my value to other people in dollars that it just feels like trying to decide if a cantaloupe is right by putting air in your tires. Like they just seem like completely unrelated, right? But they're not unrelated. That's just my money story. At the beginning, I worked exclusively with agencies, which have their own pros and cons. And so I didn't have to do that kind of negotiating kind of stuff. But I also have no idea how they were pitching me and what I lost or what they gave to some other speaker. So then once I got out of exclusive agencies and started doing it on my own, I have a really, really good close rate if they find me. I do very, very little outbound, cold, hey, 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 I'm over here kind of marketing calls. But if they have already found me, they're already interested in me. So then it made the money conversation easier. Mm -hmm. So what do you tell yourself when you're throwing a price out there? Do you just disassociate? (laughs) (laughs) because I think especially when I'm talking to new speakers who are saying how much should I charge for this gig and I throw out a number and they're like really I can't imagine myself saying that it's like they have to have a conversation with themselves they need to have a mindset shift There's, there's like something that needs to take place in order for those words to come out of their mouth and the way that you're describing it it sounds like you don't really like having that conversation either but you've managed to be in this business full time self employed And it makes me wonder, there must be some way that you're able to have that conversation, even if you still feel like you're, you know, getting paid for what you do, feel like they're not even connected. Yeah. I mean, there's, first off, yes, right. And I feel like it it depends on where I'm at in the given moment, right? So I have little like self-coaching things, right? So one of them is kind of this Robin Hood thing. So when... And I'm getting ready to say something that makes me sound like some kind of super gold lame baller, and (laughs) I'm not. I've now been doing this long enough, which also means, like, speaking as many times as I did for next to nothing, I'm actually a good speaker because I have so much time in the saddle, right? Like, I've dealt with every interruption you could possibly deal with twice, right? Like, I've had wildlife run through the ballroom in the middle of the keynote twice. Right? Like I can handle it, whatever. It's totally fine. So my confidence on what I do on the platform is fine. I'm more nervous about what to wear than I am. Can I talk for an hour and a half? And they say that was good. That part's easy for me. So I have the Robin Hood story, right? So when a customer or client calls me and is like, I'm so sorry, we only have 50 bazillion dollars. Can you make that work? And you're like, yeah, that's more than I netted last year. Yes, I can do that. to To Instead of shoving it away, I need that money, cash all checks, hashtag cash all checks. But that enables me to do something that's more lower fee where it's a lot of work, right? So some low fee gigs aren't always a lot of work, but sometimes you're like, I'm getting paid how much for this? Like, that is not enough for as much work as I'm putting in. So then the Robin Hood thing balances out overall. For me, it was very important to have, to arrive at the bottom number. And I get to choose if I want to leave for less than that. 
And once I decided that, I almost never get opportunities that are less than that now because I've like told the universe what my pricing is or whatever. I really like my job. And so I'm more flexible than a lot of speakers want to be because I want to speak. I could probably garner a higher fee than what I'm getting booked at, but I don't want to because I want to work. And where I'm at right now has me working as many times as I want to. That sounds great. I have a self rule that when I'm done speaking, no matter how much they paid me, I know I'm at the right fee structure when consistently the client who books me says, wow, that was amazing. We should have paid you more. Well, if they paid me $30,000 for the record, I've never been paid $30,000, but if they had paid me $30,000, I don't think I can deliver something that makes that meeting professional go, wow, we should have paid you more, right? Like, so then I need to work on my stuff. So then I'm at a price point where that is what people say, but I would rather over deliver than get paid a bunch and not be worth it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What advice do you have for speakers who are trying to break into this field and are feeling lost or stuck? Welcome. (laughs) Because 15 years in, I, as confident as I might be about something else, 30 seconds later, I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do? What? I have an assistant who, whenever I get completely overwhelmed, I call it a touch base. I was like, we need to have like a touch base meeting, which is usually like three hours long. And we go through every lead and every contract and where are we and what's going on. Because I'm super old school, I could log into Evernote and just see all this stuff. But I don't remember how to log into Evernote. So it has to be a phone call. So then we do this. And she said, she always says this, that I'm so stressed out that I'm going to forget something. And I'm more on top of it than I am than most of her other speakers. But I don't believe her. And I feel stressed out, right? So I don't, I don't know that the feeling ever goes away. And I, there's a part of me that thinks if it does, you should switch careers. You know, like at the very beginning of my professional life, I taught high school. That didn't go well. But I had a teacher who I remember I was brand new and I was so excited and everything. I was in the teacher's lounge and they were so upset they had to go to work that day. Not for any reason, just because they were burnt out and they were, you know, and I told myself if I ever feel like that about students, I should stop. And I think it's similar with a professional speaker is that if there are times where you just get tired and you just need some time off right? Like that's very different than like, I do not want to do this. And I think that if that happens, you should probably go do something else. The way that you, you're coming across in our conversation is so real and, and raw and like, yeah, I'm a person too. And I have my own challenges and I still struggle with things. And I still have lots of questions that I may have been doing this for 15 years, but I'm still wondering how to do it right and, and all of that. Is that how you come across on stage as well? I believe so. I get told all the time that like, I'm, I'm so on brand, which <laughs> the weirdest language of saying like, I woke up, right? So like at the beginning of this podcast, I, I am normally a very morning person. I'm normal. I've normally been up for like three hours by now. And this morning I was like, nah, nah. And I did the thing where I didn't hit snooze every five minutes. I actually recalculated my alarm and reset it in my sleep. Like that's when you, I'm not waking up this morning, right? But 
I can feel like that on stage and my audience members feel like that occasionally. So like, why not be real about it? Why, why pretend? I, again, going back to the marketing piece you asked about in the beginning, nobody else can do it my way. Why would I change? Like some people have this like stage voice. As soon as they step stage, they're like, hello, my name is Jessica Pettit. And today I'm going to talk about authenticity, right? Like, ugh, like I'm leaving the room. Like if I was watching that, I would go in the hallway and check my email. Yeah. And ultimately we have, I can't even believe this is a job, right? But like my job is to allow people to be distracted from their email or the cash bar at the back of the room, that's all I have to do is capture their attention enough to deliver the problem that I talk about, right? Like, this is not a big ask. So you might as well just be yourself. And it's so, like, being on brand is such a weird compliment, but I am always on brand because I, it's my brand. I made it up. I'm self-employed. Like, I can't imagine the cognitive dissonance of like, oh, Jessica, you can't do that. That's not on brand. What do you mean? What do you mean it's not on brand? You can't choose that font, right? Like, <laughs> what are, you do whatever you want to do. It's your business. That's why it's called self-employed. And there are parts of it that are really, really hard that I have no interest in doing and I have to do anyway because I'm self-employed, but it's better than being in someone else's staff meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, did, what would you say is your least favorite part of being a professional speaker? My least favorite part? All of it. <laughs> Not all of it. I love a lot of it. Probably this week, I did laundry and immediately put it back in my suitcase. Mm-hmm. So like feeling connected to my home and my relationships and my friends who give two crapolas that like yesterday I got a standing ovation and had a hundred people standing in line in my book and today we're out of toilet paper and the dogs don't have any more biscuits right like balancing those two things is really hard and I often will pull that up and I have to like reconcile a receipt or like put some, I don't even like using PowerPoint. So they made me use PowerPoint and now I have to use PowerPoint and it has to be in their template that has like a race car in the bottom corner or something weird. Right. And in the grand scheme of things that, that is not that big of a deal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like using PowerPoint either. Are you able to get around not using it most of the time? Yes. I just tell them I don't use PowerPoint. And they're okay with that. They're like, uh, I don't understand. How do you possibly do that? And, and so I'll just say, have you ever seen a stand-up comic with a PowerPoint? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are very few speakers I know that don't use it. Oh, I hate it. Realistically, I'll get pushed back and be like, well, we don't really want just a stand-up comic. Like, this is for continuing education credits, and we're all accountants. And I was like, I don't use PowerPoint. Like, So then there have been very few, but there have been some clients that like insisted I use PowerPoint. One time I did a PowerPoint that was nothing but puppy pictures. (laughs) And I said, they told me I had to use PowerPoint. Please enjoy. There's another time where I did it where, was it just colors? I think it was just colors. Yep. 
then it's funny is now that I do, I do do some things for CEs. And so in order for the, me to keep my accreditation or whatever for those CEs, it has to be the identical information every time I do the workshop. So I don't know if you've had enough experience with how this mind works, but like the PowerPoint can be helpful because I need it to be like, hold on, I have to talk about this right now. So I'm, I say that up front, like I don't use PowerPoint normally. I'm not a techie person, but I have to make sure that I say the same things and I don't forget something. So we're going to be using a PowerPoint. So please enjoy. Then the, of course, the technology doesn't work, right? So then I'll have the printout, which is also stupid, but again, I have to make sure I say the right things. But I just, I imaginary point to the screen when I change the page and they really do find it funny, right? So it's just another way of being funny. Mm-hmm. I love that. One time, one time I did a showcase where you couldn't participate without a PowerPoint. So I told a story about Martin Luther King and I'm not a scripter. I'm not a rehearser, that kind of thing. I think about it and I practice the jokes or the lines, but I do it in a very disjointed way and then pull it all together. Anyway, so I had to do this in order to do this big showcase. So I had 174 pictures of Martin Luther King from all around his life, all put together. And so then I did have a PowerPoint and it was of Martin Luther King, which is actually what I was talking about. But what I did was, is that at every pause or every sentence or every break, I just changed the picture. And it was very dramatic and it was a very cool effect. It's not tied to what I'm going to say because that's not how it work. Why would I, why would I put on an extra pair of Spanx? <laughs> Awesome. All right, I have a couple of questions I like to ask my guests at the end of the interview. The first is, what is your favorite word and what does it taste like? Mm, am I allowed to cuss on this show? Yeah. My favorite word is fuck, hands down, like at 100%. If I'm not allowed to cuss, I will say my favorite word is, pro, my favorite word is prohos mukarchka. <laughs> what is that? I was in the Peace Corps in Bulgaria and I speak fluent Bulgarian, which comes in handy almost never. And is a very hard word to pronounce. And it literally means earth sucker, which is what they call a vacuum cleaner. And when I was struggling to learn this language, when I got to that vocabulary word, I was like, oh, this language has a sense of humor. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. What does it taste like? Yeah. What's amazing about the word fuck is that it can, it can taste like all different kinds of things because just those four words, four letters can be said and have different connotations. So I would say that it can taste anywhere from old battery acid to the freshest whipped buttercream frosting. I like that. You're the first to have a spectrum of flavors for a word. Yeah, that's true. And Prohost Makarchka tastes like a vacuum cleaner bag. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you could give one piece of advice to your 25-year-old self, what would you say? My 25-year-old self? Yeah. Well, literally, I would say, please stop drinking because you're going to kill yourself. That's not a very fun answer, but it's true. I honestly think that like the romantic answer, right, is that like you can do it. You're going to be amazing. And I think I think if I if I like set, so in order to catch my 25, I'd have to be sitting at a bar. 
So I'd go back to the bar and I would just tell her like the anxiety and the loneliness and the questioning and the lack of confidence, none of that's going to go away. So make it your friend, like stop pushing it away. Like it is a permanent roommate. I think that's what I would say. And stop drinking. (laughs) Do you have a motto you live by today? And if so, what is it? Well, the, the tagline of my book is do the best you can with what you got some of the time. <laughs> and I think that that is my life motto. I think that is the thesis of my work. I think that's, that's what I'm about. Which, uh, by the way, is very on brand. It is. <laughs> Jess, how can we find more information about you? So you can go to goodenoughnow.com. That's the title of my book. It's the name of my company, et cetera. Nobody can spell my last name. So goodenoughnow.com. And then extra bonus, if you go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies, there's all kinds of activities and videos and things like that that are free that I try to make accessible to people who cannot maybe buy the book or don't want to buy the book, et cetera. But I'm always available to help in whatever way I can. Excellent. Can you share a little bit more about the book and the title? Sure. So it's called Good Enough Now. Doing the best you can with what you got some of the time is better than nothing. And it also is a Trojan horse diversity training. So when people talk about being self-reflective and responsible for who you are, sometimes people need to know, like, how do you do that, right? Like, you don't have to become yogi master overnight. You just actually just start stretching is kind of the first step, right? So the book walks you through a process of how to, how to be responsible for who and how you are. Love it. And where can we get that? On the Amazons. I'm sure there's used copies everywhere. Okay. Well, Jess, thanks so much for being here and being on brand for the interview and showing up and just, you know, waking up in time. I appreciate it. I really, this was great. I really like talking with you and I'm glad that we got a chance to, to do this today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And if Anybody actually still listening to this all the way at the end, please know that the two horses thing gets me back at my office desk is that I either check my ego or I have to check my humility. But that active checking is, I think, called being self-employed, right? So thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks so much. There you have it. Today's guest mentor interview. Check out the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. If you're enjoying the series, please send a message to my guests to let them know and leave a review on iTunes to help more women find the show. The guest mentors five-part summer series is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, my signature online course that teaches you how to become a paid professional speaker in six weeks or less. Learn branding, marketing, speechcraft, pricing, pitching, and so much more. Now until August 31st, First, get 20% off using promo code SUMMER20 at checkout. Learn more at speakersisterhood.thinkific.com. Link is in the show notes. This series is also sponsored by Told Video, original thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in speaker marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Follow Told Video on Instagram at Told Video for flash sales and discounts announced monthly. This podcast has been a production of the Speaker Sisterhood and was recorded at the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Learn more at speakersisterhood.com. Well, that does it for me, my friends. As always, 
Stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.